You're listening to Four Advisors, the podcast for and about financial advisors. This program is for educational purposes only, and the opinions expressed here by guests do not necessarily fully or accurately reflect the opinions, legal intent, or nature of Congress Wealth Advisor Solutions, Congress Wealth Management LLC, or their senior management. Please note that Congress Wealth Advisor Solutions is a division of Congress Wealth Management LLC. Congress Wealth Management LLC is an SEC RIA based in Boston, Massachusetts. For additional information about Congress Wealth Management LLC, please visit our website at www.congresswealth.com or visit the Investment Advisor Public Disclosure website at www.advisorinfo.sec.gov by searching with Congress's CRD number 310873. Congress Wealth Advisor Solutions, Congress Wealth Management LLC, and their senior management believe this information in this program to be accurate and reliable but does not warrant it as to completeness or accuracy. Due to rapidly changing market conditions and the complexity of investment decisions, supplemental information and other sources may be required to make informed investment decisions based on your individual investment objectives and suitability specifications. This program is not intended to give legal, investment, or financial planning advice and opinions and statements made in this podcast should not be relied on as such. No portion of this program is to be construed as a solicitation to buy or sell a security or the provision of personalized investment tax or legal advice. Investing entails the risk of loss of principal. Hello, and welcome to Four Advisors, the podcast for and about financial advisors. I'm your host, Dave Polis. And today we have a very interesting program planned for you, specifically aimed at those of you who are contemplating a break from your larger established brokerage or wirehouse. Our guest today is Lewis Diamond of Diamond Consultants, and we'll be discussing the ins and outs of becoming a breakaway advisor and what that can mean for you, your income, your clients, and your future. As president of Diamond Consultants, Lewis is responsible for the day-to-day operations of the firm with an eye towards future growth. Much like the advisors he counsels, His focus remains on providing the best possible advice for those he works with while transforming the firm into a scalable enterprise. After graduating magna cum laude with a BBA degree in finance and international business from George Washington University, Lewis began his career with some of the biggest names in financial services industry. Working as a consultant at Ernst & Young and in wealth management at Morgan Stanley and UBS prepared him to understand the financial world from a client's perspective. Lewis is an author and contributor to the financial services media on industry news and trends, including the Wall Street Journal, Financial Planning Magazine, Barron's, The Washington Post, WealthManagement.com, FundFire, RIA Biz, ThinkAdvisor, CityWire, and on Wall Street. In addition to being active on social media and writing for the Diamond Consultants article library, he also co-hosts another podcast for financial advisors, Mindy Diamond on Independence. Lewis was recently named one of the top five financial advisors you should know by Business Insider. Lewis, thanks so much for joining us today. It's a real privilege to have you on the program. Yeah, Dave, I appreciate the opportunity. This will be fun. For wirehouse and brokerage-based advisors, the journey, mentally and emotionally, towards going out on your own is a long and maybe torturous one for many. There are so many factors to consider, and each has to have its own weight in the decision-making process. 
Yet there are very few anecdotal data points to suggest that this move ever works out less than positively for the advisor. You almost never hear of any cautionary tales of advisors who've left the bosom of a big firm to go out on their own and then failed miserably and went bankrupt. What do you think created all the angst about breaking away for advisors? Yeah, it's a good question. So I think in, in large part, a lot of the angst is fueled by the, the narrative that major firms that most of these advisors are coming from. Um, it's the narrative that the firm retains most of the clients when an advisor leaves, which we know is not true. It's the narrative that you need a big brand and a big platform and everything under one roof in order to serve clients, especially higher net worth clients. It's the narrative that technology isn't very good as an independent, that it's all kind of piecemeal and not very well integrated. And it's also the, the part of the narrative about the fact that running a business is going gonna, is gonna to cripple you, that you're going to spend all your time operating the business, no time with clients, and growth stalls out. So I think that's really the, um, the reasons why that narrative is there. And quite honestly, a lot of that was true um, until I would say probably 2013 or 2014 when we saw an emergence of platform providers. So firms like yours and many others that helped to take on a lot of the day-to-day -day work um, of a new business. Um, advisors, whether no matter where they are, have to be somewhat entrepreneurial because they're bringing in clients, they're, they're running their team, they're running a business. But for many, running a, a business and treating it as a business is new. So that's really paved the way. Plus the commoditization of things like platforms, advancements in fintech have made it so that there's really nothing that a breakaway advisor can't do as an independent. And I would even, even posit can do it better because of true open architecture and the ability to access all of the street. Now, that's a big list of misperceptions about how breaking away and turning an RIA into your own business uh, can be difficult. What are the three biggest? What are really the things that are holding people back? So number one is inertia. Um, it's much easier to stay than it is to leave. Transitioning is a risk. It's a lot of work. It's a pain in the butt. Anyone who's done it would, would I think, attest to that. And no one wants to just jump into a transition. It's much easier to just make peace with what's going on, regardless of the frustrations, because it's, it's just better. I mean, especially right now, advisors are coming off one of their best years ever. The markets are cooperative. Um, businesses are growing. It's much easier to just reconcile that you're pretty happy, even though you're probably not. That's the first one is inertia. Um, I think the second one is decision overload. Um, there's a lot of choices out there for advisors, whether it's, should I stay in channel, go to another major firm? Do I take a deal and go to, we would call a regional firm, a company like a Raymond James or a Stiefel? Do I go some version of independent? If I do, do I start my own RIA? Do I join a broker dealer as an independent? Do I join an RIA? Do I sell a portion of my business? There's just so many decisions and factors that sometimes advisors just kind of stay by default. Um, and then I would say the third barrier is fear of the unknown. So fear of clients not coming, fear of clients not believing in the, the new brand or the new story, and then fear that you're not going to be able to serve clients as well. Um, all of those are very real, not to minimize any of them because they're, they're, they're there. But I think advisors that are unhappy enough and who take the time to get educated and take time to work on the business, it's abundantly clear that proof's in the pudding. And if you ultimately know that there's a better way to serve clients and run your business, that it's worth it in the end, even if it's a short-term aggravation. 
So despite all that, there is a clear path to success at the end. Uh, Of course, it's still a business decision. The numbers have to work in your favor as well on paper before the emotional factors and all the work can be blended into that decision. How do those numbers have to look on paper to make a go, no go, go decision? What sorts of calculations and assessments should an advisor be making in order to come to a good decision to break away? What's what's the, the formula look like? Sure. Yeah. So I don't think there is is a true formula. The, the biggest thing is advisors, just like any human being, they value different things in life. Um, advisors have different risk tolerances. Advisors are in different stages of their professional life, have different um, have are, are in different places financially. Um, so what an advisor will need to see and how the numbers need to look are really different depending upon all of those factors. Um, when we're counseling advisors on breaking away. I mean, the first thing is just making making sure that they're all right in taking taking the business risk. Um, I mean, even though transitions tend to go quite well, and like you said in your introduction, uh, people don't tend to go back the other direction, go from independence back to a captive environment. But you're still taking the short-term risk of what if not all the clients come? And the bigger thing is the opportunity cost of not getting a life-changing upfront recruitment deal from another firm. So that's the first part is advisors just have to be more long-term oriented on the economics because there, is a, there, there isn't going to be a crossover point for where the economics of independence and the equity value that you're building um, is going to make sense relative to the upfront recruiting deal. So that's the first part. And people either are comfortable with that or they're not. The second part is um, we'll work with advisors to create a pro forma profit and loss statement to see exactly what their business looks like on a different platform. Um, So you can see that depending upon the size of the business and the expense load, um, that payouts tend to be, I would say, let's say a well-run independent business should net anywhere from 60 to 70% of revenue that's net to the owners of the business versus at a captive firm, you're probably in the, in the low forties, maybe some cases, even high thirties when it's all said and done. So clearly that's a big difference. Um, But advisors then need to model in their own assumptions for portability and for growth. Um, so it's always a business decision, but, um, but ultimately advisors who go independent, they do it for many other reasons than just the economics math has to make sense. Your family has to be comfortable with it. You have to have the confidence that it's the right move, but other factors like having ultimate flexibility and control and building a business, those factors have to be weighted pretty heavily because otherwise it's just easier to stay in channel or go to another W2 firm and kind of take the easier route. So there's work and that freedom comes at a cost, but the benefit and the value is so much better if you are able to stick it out. Yeah, um, it's, it's almost a no brainer in most cases. It sounds like a lot to take on, though, by yourself. If you're going to leave a big office and go it on your own, there's a lot of things that that big office actually supplies you that you may or may not be aware of in the background. Are there companies out there that can work through all this with you and, and help you make those various decisions and help you get set up? Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, that's probably been the biggest catalyst of this breakaway advisor movement. Um, Prior to, I said earlier, it's a complete estimation, but say 2013 or 2014, um, an advisor who wanted to break away, they either went to an independent broker dealer. So companies like Raymond James Financial Services or LPL Financial or Cambridge or Cetera, Uh, nothing wrong with those firms, but they were kind of like the only, say, soft landing spot for advisors considering independence or for the very, very entrepreneurial, they launched their own RIA and literally had to build it brick by brick. And there's not nearly the amount of outsourced solutions there are today. So on top of the fact that 
Wirehouse and Captive Advisors um, are probably right now a little bit unhappier than they ever were, and their freedoms have been taken away more and more as uh, time has gone on. The, the enablement factor has been companies like yours and some of your competitors who, in a very turnkey way, can help a captive W-2 advisor who's never operated a business um, become a business owner. And it's really cool to see that when the lights flip on the day of a break, um, the company looks like it's been in existence for 20 years. You got real estate built out, you got a website, you got benefits for your, your employees, and it's, it's a real ready-made business. Um, so there's definitely companies to take away some of the burden. Um, we'll work with advisors to think through what are the activities you want to retain, whether it's investments or whether maybe a couple might say compliance, most would say no, um, and then figure out how to outsource the rest. And you can either outsource really everything to an integrated platform provider, kind of more of a, more of a bundled approach, um, or you can pick and choose what aspects to outsource. So run your own RIA but making it up. I want to outsource compliance. I want to outsource technology. And then I think there's value in retaining the rest. So really any combination and permutation an advisor wants, um, there's support for it. The, the biggest ingredient though that no one can take away is the desire for an advisor to be an, to be an entrepreneur and to be a CEO. Those are functions that um, any talented provider can't, can't remove. So you need that willingness. But once you have that willingness and you're self-aware enough, um, then you can figure out um, what you want to relinquish versus what you want to keep in-house. So you can keep the things you're good at and that you like and offshore the, th the stuff that you don't that allows you to spend more time doing the stuff you're good at. That sounds Precisely. like a formula for success to me. Now, your firm has a formal process for assessing the practice's readiness or preparedness. Uh, it's a seven-step vetting process that, that helps things get jump-started. Tell me a bit about how that came to be and how it works. Yeah, sure. So, um, I mean, we've been doing legitimately the same thing for close to 25 years. Um, my mother, Mindy Diamond, founded our business um, just recruiting advisors. Um, it was recruiting for really just one firm at the time. It was for Morgan Stanley. And that grew to really working with every firm and model across the industry, um, especially an emphasis on the independent space. So we decided to formalize our process, kind of just what we've been doing all these years, but putting a name to it. So we found that in pretty much every consulting engagement we have with advisors, um, seven steps are followed. The first step is education, taking as much time as the advisor needs to answer questions, um, lay out the way the landscape looks, what's changed, what's the difference between a wirehouse or a regional firm, what does it mean to be an RIA, can I be keep my brokerage business, whatever the, the questions might be. That's the first phase. Um, the, the second step is, um, is discovery, where we're learning about their business. We have a proprietary self-assessment um, that has 20 or so questions that we take advisors through, and it's more for self-discovery, um, seeing what's, what's frustrating the advisor, what are, what, if they had a magic wand, what are the things they would want in a new firm, um, do, they, do they value the, the short-term or, or more of the long-term uh, orientation? Um, so it's helpful for the advisors, but also very helpful for us so we can help guide them. Um, and then in the third step, um, we come up with a, um, with a, we call it a, a due diligence playbook. Um, it's a document that has, we think, all the best questions that for advisors should ask of firms, and it's customized to every situation. Um, and then we're coming up with a customized opportunity set. So we have over 300 plus relationships with firms, broker dealers, custodians, platform providers, et cetera. And instead of saying, hey, go talk to 300 firms, it's based upon what we learned in the prior steps, 
Let's look at the couple that makes sense. Let's come up with a strategy. And then I won't go into details on every other step, but it's a combination of comparing and contrasting different options, being an objective resource to advisors so that they know what they're looking at is tried and true, reassessing if we're not kind of finding something that, that meets the mark. Um, and then working through the process, ultimately negotiating if it gets to it on their behalf. And then finally is transition intelligence. What are the best practices? Helping them with their narrative to clients, um, introducing them to advisors that have made the move before. Um, so it's a real end-to-end -end process with the goal of streamlining a very overwhelming due diligence process into something that's pretty manageable. That does sound like a lot to absorb, and it sounds like you've got it pretty well nailed down in terms of the process that you have to go through to really do this. But uh, it, just because you're a good financial advisor doesn't mean you know how to run a business. Are there additional skills or training or certifications you'd recommend for advisors that are considering breaking away? That's a great question. So I think one of the first things is just talking to peers, um, talking to friends that have made the move before, um, to talk whoever, whatever resource partners you're talking to, whether it's a custodian, it's a broker dealer, it's a firm like Pinnacle, it's, it's a platform provider, um, is just speaking with as many people as possible to understand where, where are potential uh, road bumps and what was it like to become a CEO? I think that right there is a big transition point. Um, so I'm a member of, of the Strategic Coach Program, which is chock full of advisors. I, I think it's great. And I think coaching and um, con consulting firms do a great job of helping advisors make that leap from advisor and team lead to being a CEO. Um, I don't know necessarily about certifications. Of course, there's some of the advanced professional accreditations like the CFP or the CFA. Um, I think those are just good for as, as a professional. But again, I think the big thing is um, talking with folks that have uh, that have kind of gone down the path and then forming a, a peer group, whether it's through a coaching or consulting company, forming a study group. And then I think a lot of the value advisors get from some of these platform providers is that you have a built-in community of like-minded advisors. So people that are going through similar issues and challenges and you have um, resources you can call upon. And ultimately what you're paying for um, is access, access to senior professionals, access to people that have done this before and who can help you along the way. So really it's a change in mindset. You've got to look at yourself in a different way and look at your business in a different way as now the head of a corporation almost rather than just providing advice to clients. Exactly. And, and for some advisors, the, the, that shift is, is tough. And that's why I think we're seeing a decent amount of M&A activity right now. A lot of it's succession oriented, but we, we have clients every year come to us saying, it's great being independent. I like the autonomy, but I'm just kind of fed up with running the business. I've been running it for 15, 20 years and I'm good at it, but I much prefer just being in the markets and going out and bringing in new business. So that's an impetus to either fold up their independent practice and affiliate with an existing platform or perhaps to sell the business. Um, and some advisors too, on, on our podcast series, we've interviewed a number of guests who have made the decision as their firm is scaled up to take off the advisor hat and just become a full-time CEO. Or on the flip side, some folks who run massive businesses but love being an advisor, so keep um, to still keep their own practice. And they think it informs their strategy and their ability to support their employees. So there's no perfect way to go about it. The main thing is, if you're independent, you control the whole playing field and you don't have anyone else telling you what to do. For some, that's overwhelming. For others, it's one of the most incredible gifts they'll get in their professional career. So there's a transition going in that's got to be tolerated. And then there's a tradition, a transition going out 
that you have to consider even up front as to how that's going to work, a succession plan and an exit strategy. Absolutely. You got to think all the way through this thing. Now, we've heard a lot of things about advisors doing really well after they break away and become independent. What kind of future can a breakaway advisor expect? I mean, we've heard stories about working 18 hours a day and never getting a vacation because, well, clients. But there are other stories (laughs) with headlines like, I only work 10 hours a week and I'm killing it. So what's a realistic expectation as to the workload and the income potential when you make this break? Yeah. So it again, completely up to you as the business owner. Um, I, I would say what's non-negotiable is the transition period. So say the first three months, you're going to be working your tail off. And that's the same if you're going to start your own RIA or you're going to Morgan Stanley. It's just the nature of the business. Um, once you're kind of in a steady state and the clients are over, the clients you wanted to come are over, um, then I would say the first year, you're still kind of drinking from a fire hose. There's, there's new functions. There's a ton of opportunity out there and you're kind of still finding your sea legs. After that, it's completely up to the business owner to decide, do I want to run a lifestyle practice? Do I want to just work the 10, 15 hours a week, kind of put it on autopilot? Do I want to hire people to kind of take on everything and I'll just kind of have passive income and be a CEO or others who say, I'm just going to, I'm going to burn it at, at both ends of the, um, of the spectrum here, work 60 hours a week, grow this thing to a certain size and sell it for a big number when I'm 45 years old and then others who sit in between. So it's really up to what the advisor values. Are they growth oriented? Is it more just as a lifestyle practice? And what are their ultimate aspirations? Again, up to you as the business owner. That's the beauty of independence. No one's watching over you and saying, you have to work this many hours or you have to sell this many annuities or you have to refer this many clients to a bank. It's completely up to you to decide how much you work and ultimately you reap the ultimate rewards because it's your equity and um, you're getting the higher payouts as a result. That's a lot to absorb. We're up on a break. When we come back, We'll be talking about marketing and compliance and some of the other back office functions and how those get transitioned. We'll be right back. Are you an RIA or financial advisor looking to grow and scale your practice, but feel like you could use some help? Feel like there are lots of growth options out there, but don't have time to research them and don't want to make an expensive mistake? Want to spend more time helping clients instead of time-consuming investment research, compliance checks, or transactional work? If you answered yes to any of these, Congress Wealth Advisor Solutions has the answers you need. With a range of outsource options and professional investment management and financial planning support, Congress Wealth Advisor Solutions has a solution that fits your needs, budget, and circumstances to help you scale up, grow your practice, or put a succession plan in place. Call to get more information or set up an appointment with a representative at 201-919-4888. And we're back with Lewis Diamond of Diamond Consultants. Lewis, most brokerages have a lot of departments and supports that have little or nothing to do directly with investments or financial planning. If it's a smaller brokerage, they may not even custodian funds themselves, but use an outside custodian. How do you go about setting up those relationships and getting that back office side taken care of initially? Yeah, so I, I think the, the, I mean, the first part is it depends upon how, how independent you want to be. So one way to set up the back office very easily is to affiliate with a, 
with a broker dealer. Um, I mentioned some of them earlier, the LPLs and Commonwealths and Raymond James of the world. Uh, one of the things you're getting there is a turnkey back office. Um, they're either doing all the compliance for you or take away most of the work. And then you either outsource to a series 910 or you have one in your office and it's relatively turnkey. Um, the alternative would be, let's start our own RIA. That means that compliance sits in the hands of the advisor, but there's many outsourcing solutions. So again, comes back to what do you want to control? What do you want to relinquish? And what's the ultimate best use of your time relative to the cost, of course. Um, so there's a number of different solutions to set up the back office, whether it's hiring a COO, letting them kind of control it, um, whether it's outsourcing um, aspects of it, or some folks might even say, let's, let's join an RIA. Let's, let's join an RIA as an independent contractor, be 1099s. Our assets will sit with the major custodian. And what I'm paying them for is to be our turnkey middle and back office. So again, it comes back to what do you value most? And there's ample solutions for any of that. That's a lot of choices, but some good ones. I think you could probably pick one that's perfectly suited to you and do just fine. Um, now, when you first set up, there seems to be a lot of hoops to jump through, compliance being one of them. Um, brokerages have a whole department just to deal with that aspect. How do you manage that? If you're going to outsource it, how do you select that? Yeah, that's a good question. Compliance does stop many advisors in their tracks. Um, it's the fear because major brokerages, to your point, have massive armies of compliance folks. And compliance is done in a completely different way as an employee of a brokerage firm. So not to pick on any particular firm, but some of them are 14 or 15,000 advisors. Compliance is always managed to the lowest common denominator, managed to the worst possible person in the firm. It has to be. You're also dealing with a commingled ADV where you have people doing brokerage business, some people doing advisory only, some folks are recommending alternative investments and doing syndicate business. Others are just doing basic planning and ETFs. So because of that, um, advisors have a pretty nasty taste in their mouth when they think of compliance. The reality is when you take on the compliance responsibility as an independent, it's not, it's not the worst thing in the world. Some people actually prefer to, to handle compliance themselves because they can control it. But I would say most of our clients who go independent for the first time, um, maybe in the future, they might, they might take back the compliance reins, but they'll either join an ADV to, to let that firm handle it, um, or they'll fully outsource compliance to an outsource provider and let them become the, the outsource chief compliance officer or some, them or someone on their team will be the CCO. Um, and then they'll work with a compliance consulting firm, kind of be your outsource compliance expert. Um, so there's a number of different providers in the different categories. Um, the custodians are a really good way to kind of help select. Um, consultants like us can certainly help as well. And then again, coming back to friends, um, seeing people who you like and trust in the industry, seeing what their solutions are and um, fact-checking whether they've had a good experience. Now, you talked before about the, the process taking a while and there will be a, a slack period, so to speak, where you're working really heavily, but not necessarily producing the income while you make the transition. How long does the whole process take to get set up and registered and started? Yeah. So, I mean, the, the due diligence process itself, the education and if I go, if I leave, where am I going to go? Um, that can take as much or as little time as an advisor wants. I would say on the low end, it's probably two to three months but we've seen it take a year plus. So it really depends upon an advisor's style decision-making um, and how much emphasis they're going to put on this project versus um, kind of letting it go on the back burner for a period of time. Um, so once they make a decision, say, hey, let's, let's go independent. 
and let's do it with XYZ custodian. We're going to outsource this to, to this person. Um, I, I would say you want a minimum of two to three months of lead time. Um, it takes, I believe, you might know better than me, um, up to 45 days for the SEC to approve the ADV. There's things like real estate, which always causes delays and potential issues. So maybe some advisors might move into temporary space. You got to build a website and that can take on a whole life of its own. And a lot of just nuts and bolts of operating a business for the first time. So I would say two to three months on the low end might be more if you're fully taking the transition process on yourself and you're not outsourcing aspects of it. Um, and then once you resign, um, we normally see it's, I would say, a three-month period of transitioning. It's not, you're not working till midnight for all three months, maybe the first week or two you are. Um, and then it kind of slows down a bit. And I would say for the first six months, you're still kind of feeling your way. Um, the clients who are over are going to be over well before then, but you're just kind of learning new things. You're learning a new CRM system, learning new technologies, learning how to, who to call if there's an issue. Um, learning how to be, how to be a CEO. Um, so that was, a, I think, a bit of a long answer. Um, so it really depends. But I would say, in short, um, due diligence can take as long as or short as you as you'd like. Um, you then want probably two to three months of prep time, potentially more, and then likely three to six months of like actually transitioning and finding your sea legs. Safe to say, year, maybe a little longer total. And, that's fair. and I think that's a very reasonable estimate. And I think it really depends on, on the ambition of the advisor and how quickly they can absorb all this new information. All right. So I'm new yep. at a breakaway advisor and I've got this new RIA set up and I've got some clients from my previous firm. Now it's my job to go find more clients since there's no one else to do it but me. How do I start to develop those marketing functions to grow awareness, to feed my sales pipeline and to push referrals? How do I get going with that? Yeah, that's a really good question. So that's one of the that's one of the really fun things about being independent, and that's one of the ingredients that an advisor likely is going to want and be excited about. Um, advisors in captive environments can't really do any marketing. They all have pretty standard websites. They're very limited in what they can do on social media, if anything. Um, if they want to like sponsor an event, it's really difficult. Want to do a seminar? It's all prepackaged stuff. Um, they can't even dream of having a podcast or talking to the media or even market commentary is kind of pre-canned. So it, it depends upon how much an advisor wants to focus on that. Um, I mean, I'm biased because content marketing is our, is the backbone of our business with our articles and our podcasts. Um, and for advisors that focus on it, it can be a game changer. We have a number of RIA clients who run massive seminar businesses and who have podcasts and are active in social media. And they grow far faster organically than their counterparts. So part of it's understanding your own unique abilities. Do I, as the advisor, have a passion for this? Um, or maybe someone on my team does. That's the first part is kind of knowing yourself. And then from there, it's surrounding yourself with the right experts. So whether it's a marketing agency, uh, it's a PR company, um, an outsource like podcast production company, um, or even, even various platforms who specialize in helping advisors grow organically, um, that's a nice way to round it out. Um, so really sky's the limit, but getting bogged down in too much opportunity is a potential trap of being independent. So while everyone wants to grow, um, you got to focus on what's the most essential activities of the business. And you don't want your focus on marketing, as an example, and chasing some new opportunity to get in the way of your client service, um, of networking, and of actually running the business. So really, it's a matter of 
assessing your strengths, seeing what you're good at or what you have available for resources on your team, and then filling in what's not there with a plan in place so that you don't spin your wheels or, or chase down rabbit holes. Precisely. Um, I think that's a, that's a term where they put it. And I think you're going to have much better success with a very focused plan that focuses on getting the basics down first and then growing from there. Um, of course, there are outsourced firms that, that can do all this for you. The question then becomes, how much of it do you outsource versus how much do you do yourself? Uh, what portions are you good at? What portions are you not good at or don't have the facilities for? And those decisions are all very independent, but it's all about control, which is why they're doing that in the first place. This is right. a wonderful thing. Now, how important is branding to my new firm based on all that? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, it's, a, it's a personal decision. Um, if you're leaving a captive environment, one of the reasons you likely stayed all these years is because you have a decent brand. Uh, I mean, all the major firms have brands that clients know. Some are perceived better than others. Some have been dragged through the mud a bit, but are still world-class institutions. So you, you are moving away from that kind of known entity on your business card. The really good advisors, especially ones who break away, they know that their clients are with them for them. It's their relationships and who's on their business card is just a, a detail. It doesn't really matter that much. So when they think of going independent, they're excited about creating their own brand and they want to make a brand that resonates with their clients. It speaks to the culture and the service of the company. Um, but still day one, it's not going to be a brand name that the client's going to know. So we, we always tell advisors, you have to get comfortable with the story of the custodian of your assets. So while you might have the Merrill Lynch or UBS um, business card today, the assets are safely custodied with those firms, which no one's going to put up a fight about. Um, when you're independent, it's not like Joe's RIA, this new firm is going to be um, the, custody, the custodian of assets. It's not a Bernie Madoff situation. It's leveraging Charles Schwab, Fidelity, BNY Mellon Pershing, LPL Financial, Raymond James, et cetera, and all of the uh, cybersecurity investments, the asset protection services they have. Um, and that becomes an important part of the brand. The last thing I'll say on that, Dave, is advisors oftentimes want to brand with their own name. Um, nothing wrong with that. I mean, it's it's kind of cool. I mean, my, I mean, my last name's on, on the door of our company. Um, the, the challenge with it is for advisors that want to grow inorganically, they want to add advisors, they want to acquire, um, naming with yourself is sometimes limiting because advisors joining may not resonate with that brand versus having more of a, more of a neutral brand. So you can't really go wrong. Um, you can spend a ton of money on a creative marketing agency and come up with some fancy Greek word that's naming your firm. Um, you can just pick something. One of the hard parts right now is there's so many newly formed independent businesses that that going through the trademarking process, so working with an attorney is important because a lot of the names you might think of have already been taken or are used in some shape and fashion. Or are too broad to trademark in the first place. Exactly. Um, we've seen that happen in, in many cases. They'll pick some sort of a random name and oh, well, that could be anything. We're not going to give you that trademark because 55 other businesses already use it. It doesn't make sense. Right. Um, that's good advice. I think knowing that your brand has to have some underpinnings of familiarity and continuity and latching on to the custodian to do that is a very smart thing. And I think that's going to give people the reassurance that, hey, this is a real deal. It's legit. And it's someplace we can trust and, and do business with regardless of the guy's name. And I agree, it, putting your name on the on the firm can be limiting, um, but there are many instances where people have done exactly that and done very, very well. 
I mean, BF Sol, I mean, there's a thousand instances of that Goldman Sachs that, that just get huge and it just happens to be that way. But you're right, it can be limiting on certain levels. Now, we've seen how many of these decisions need to be made before you can really get the ball rolling. Let's talk about the reward side for a minute. What are the three most prominent rewards advisors can expect when they break away and start their own? What's the big get here? Yeah, I mean, the biggest get is long-term enterprise value. You're, you're building a company that has real tangible value. You own it. You own the client relationships. You own the equity. And it's an, it, for many advisors, it's the, the largest asset on their personal balance sheet, um, far more valuable than, than their home even. Um, so that's the big reward is you're building something that you can sell in the future and sell for some crazy multiples these days. Um, I think the second reward is, um, is control. Um, you're controlling everything, the name on the door, your custodians, your tech vendors, what's in your client portfolios, who you're going to market to, who you're working with, what size clients are you working with, um, et cetera, et cetera. And really being in um, complete control of your own destiny. That's the second one. And then I think the third reward is fun. Advisors who we work with that go independent, they, they grind it out as they're transitioning, kind of building the business, but they all report having far more fun. Every hour that they're working is for them. They're, they're putting in the sweat equity and they're getting rewarded on the, on the backside. Um, and they like running a business. It's just fun to go out there and be a business owner and be on the same side of the table as their clients. So there's many rewards, but you asked for the top three and that would be my answer. It certainly sounds like all the things you'd want in a business or a career. I mean, if, if you had to leave our advisor audience with just one nugget of wisdom from today's discussion, what would it be? What was the big thing you want the audience to take away today? Yeah, that's a good question. And we ask every podcast guest that, that we have, and most of our guests are advisors that have broken away themselves. The last question is always, what sort of advice would you give someone who's thinking of breaking away? I think almost to a person, the advice is, I wish I did it sooner, um, which is very cliche these days. So I wouldn't say, I wish I did it sooner or do it now, but don't become complacent. Um, think about how the industry has changed. If you don't know, get educated on it. Talk to people, um, whether it's it's friends, it's resource providers, it's, it's folks in, in my shoes, and at least just understand what's out there. Um, staying is fine. Most advisors stay for their whole careers because it makes sense for them, but don't stay at a default. Stay because you're at the best possible place or platform. And we always think advisors should conduct some level of due diligence. doesn't have to be long every number of years, even if you're pretty happy, um, because you never know what you might find. And many advisors have light bulb moments saying, man, I really thought this was the best platform, the best brand, the best technology, but my eyes were opened after I looked around. And then you can go back to the firm and say, hey, I'm staying from a position of strength because it's the right fit and it's the right fit for my clients, not because it's just easier to not do anything. Wow. That sounds like good advice for just about any advisor I can name. Lewis, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been extremely enlightening, and I'm sure you've given our advisors an awful lot to think about in terms of whether they want to break away or not. I appreciate it, Dave. You've been listening to Four Advisors, the podcast for and about financial advisors. I'm your host, Dave Polis, and if you have questions about how you might start your journey to being an independent RIA, just drop us a line here at fouradvisors at congresswealth.com, and we'll try to get you some answers. As always, thanks for listening. <laughs>